for me, what I've learned through therapy and just growth in general the is that the question of when we go there you are is what we're going to find better than what you're leaving. I think find. men have a much harder time mm. just culturally and, and gender-wise. I think men have I've never been, you know, maybe. Hello there. I'm Yonka Kamara. Welcome to Kume Turning Point Diaries, where we share stories of critical moments in our personal and professional lives. I'm telling you this story, but I, I never, ever, ever, ever have to relive that story again. You're supposed to be able to you know, work through it, play through it. So I think that has been an Hey, y'all, we are back. I am so happy to be back and to be sitting here with this lovely mic and all the guests that you will get to meet very, very soon. Wow. Um, it's been, I think, like three months. Yes, um, that was a long break. I didn't intend it to be that long, but I am happy that I had three months to rest and and to really think about Kume and the direction of Kume. If you follow us on social media, you know that you we were recently featured in the New York Times. Shout out to Squarespace um, for putting together that piece and including us in it. It was it was truly an honor and uh, and for me on a personal note, it was just so wonderful to have that moment to reflect and show my appreciation to you all, the listeners. Um, seriously, Kume would not be where it is without you and all the love that you've shown through your reviews. Um, again. Shout out to all of you who have left us a review. If you have yet to do that, please do so. It really goes a long way. And um, I'm including the link in the show notes for those of you who did not see that piece to check it out. In the piece, I, re- I respond actually to a very touching note that I received from a listener and... The listener was Jesse, Jesse Wilson, and he's actually going to be our first guest of the season. Jesse is an organizational consultant, executive coach, and a former pastor. It's such a moving and raw conversation that we had. And in it, we uncover the struggle behind his story. And we talk about connecting with our inner child and interrogating the story we received when we were young about ourselves, the world, and our place in it. Jesse beautifully and courageously models how to build a new life after the ending of a significant chapter. How to piece together a new home, new work, new relationships, and a new sense of self. It's just so wonderful. And I'm, and I know you guys will enjoy hearing Jesse. He's one of the most inspiring people and warmest people I've ever met. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to remind you to please subscribe to the podcast, rate and review the show, and please share the story. And also, let's keep the conversation going in the comment section on our website. Yes, we have a website. It's kumehouse.com. The link is in the show notes. Um, you are able to leave your thoughts, um, share the gifts that you've gotten from the episode. I'd love to hear anything you have to say. So thank you. And now, Jesse. 
Hi, Jesse. Welcome to Kumaya Turning Point Diaries. I'm so excited to have you. How are you? Great. I'm so delighted to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure to see your face. And um, yeah, this is great. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. I recently connected with Jesse about six months ago, over six months, earlier in this calendar year. I connected yeah. with him um, through a mutual friend, Sammy. Um, Jesse's doing some research on how we become, stay, feel, find inspiration. And um, my friend Sammy thought that I would be a good person for Jesse to interview for that project, given my work with this podcast. And after talking to Jesse, I obviously was like, yes, I want to be part of it. And we have remained connected ever since. And I've really just loved talking to him. And I know that you guys are all going to enjoy listening to Jesse and everything he has to say. He's just a very incredible person. He's also a former pastor. And we're going to get into that, um, his journey with that and the, the turning points and what he's currently in the research that he's currently doing. So Jesse, tell us a little bit about what led you to become a pastor? That is a great question. <laughs> it's probably <laughs> a longer answer than we have time for, but I'll, I'll speak to some of it. Uh, you know, it began with my birth. <laughs> uh, my parents were 18 years old, uh, just coming out of high school in Detroit, uh, around the end of the Vietnam War. Uh, my dad was not drafted, and so he came to the University of Michigan for nursing school. My mom came to go to school as well. Of course, she had to drop out uh, after one semester when I was born uh, to raise me. She'd had some uh, physical health challenges in the pregnancy and in the birth. But they, when they came to Ann Arbor, they were atheists. And uh, some circumstances surrounding my birth caused them to begin independently each a spiritual journey that led to them uh, falling in love with this uh, person, Jesus, that they encountered uh, in reading the Bible. And my mom was desperate for friends, community, um, support, you know, at 18, being pregnant at that time meant the loss of certain kinds of social support that one might experience, especially at that time. And they just moved to a new city. Uh, my dad was going to school, nursing school, working in a warehouse at night. She was alone raising this little kid. And they ran into this new emerging religious group that... Um, it was called the Ecumenical Charismatic Renewal eventually, but it found its epicenter in Ann Arbor. It eventually became a worldwide movement in the 1970s and 80s, and it was a really intense religious community. Uh, it was fervently communal, passionately spiritual, and, um, and so uh, that's the environment in which I was raised. And so it, it had its uh, challenges over time, uh, various ways in which it maybe wasn't helpful for lots of people and, and caused lots of pain. Um, one of the things that it um, provided for me, though, was a picture of people who were pretty persuaded about this idea that love was powerful and intimate and real and had the capacity to... Um, lead you reliably to good life and good relationships, a good way of engaging with self and the wider world. Um, and they really committed 
to that path. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think I, I picked that up. And over the course of the years, there was a lot of, um, it was a bit of a roller coaster ride along that particular path, but that stayed with me. And uh, eventually, um, it found its expression in my life in, in pastoring a church. I'm happy to share more of the, the, the winding ways that that led, but that's as close I, as I can find to a, a short answer to how I ended up becoming a pastor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I loved what you just shared about your parents. I think it's always so interesting about how people find spirituality or find that connection. It's usually sometimes in moments of crisis where it's like, yeah. you don't know where else to turn, but it's like, okay, this... God, this is your time. This is your moment to reveal how magnificent you are. And for whatever that is, you know, that faith then becomes that love. At any point growing up, because you mentioned that it was kind of movement that the religion that they raised you in. um, At any point, did you want to not be part of it? Did you rebel? Mm. Yeah. No, remarkably, I didn't. Now, I shouldn't say, did any part of me want to? I'm sure some part of me did, but it wasn't a part I was listening to or that I gave much space for uh, within me. I, I, I happened to be the sort of kid by natural disposition and by genetic gifts and traits, etc., that was easily rewarded for being an approximation of my authentic self within that system. And so certain parts of me got reward that I enjoyed. And so I cooperated uh, in many ways that it led me eventually to an expression of, of life and self where I felt deeply trapped and I wasn't sure why. And it was, you know, very, very painful, but that wasn't my conscious experience as a kid. All of those signals of like being off track or being under pressure were hidden to me. And probably my first evidence of it was at 13 years old, I got a a bad headache that uh, never went away. And I missed a couple of years of school in and out of the hospital and all kinds of treatments and tests and drugs and, you know, every kind of therapy you can imagine uh, under the sun going to experts, um, not able to find a cause for it. And it wasn't until, oh, maybe the last five or six years that it became clear to me that that was my body trying to tell me, you know, that something about the, the pressures of that system um, were, not, were not working for me. But that's not what I heard in the time. I felt that. Another guest um, we actually know, Amina, talks about that, how, and other guests have also shared this, how sometimes what we are experiencing is, is just a manifestation of internal turmoil, you know, and it's not until we take time to really come to ourselves that we yeah. can realize that sometimes it's not even the medication. It's really just getting away from that system, getting away of that way of being. And sometimes some of us are okay with that because it's like a cry for help. It's like, come help me, come rescue me, as Amina said. But it's like when you are the one who's supposed to be rescuing yourself all along and and whatnot. And obviously, you know, chronic pain is, it's I I can't imagine. I've never um, had chronic illness, so I can't. Um, imagine what it has felt, but I know for sure that was very painful for many years. So at what moment did you realize like, oh no, this is actually 
an internal issue, not an external one. So uh, around five or six years ago is the time when I stopped being a pastor. Uh, I was divorced. I moved out of the community in which I'd been uh, serving as a pastor here to Ann Arbor. And my life was completely changed. My activities changed. My social, I lost my social world. Uh, everything was different. And for the first time in my life, uh, people weren't paying attention to me. Mm. I didn't have anyone uh, observing my life, uh, watching what I was doing, praising it or judging it. I was for the first time somewhat invisible. I'd been quite, I'd been a public figure since I was since my earliest memories in mm. various ways. And I can share a little bit about that. But I noticed that I wasn't noticing the pain anymore. Mm. Uh, I wasn't immediately gone, but it was, it was lessening or my awareness of it was. And it, it made me, as time went on and as I was in therapy and understanding more about what was going on in my own journey, recognize that I had... Um, growing up in that environment in which I'd grown up, uh, there was a lot of emphasis on, on character and goodness and being a model for others. And because mm -hmm. I was one of the first young people in that, because I'd been born to my parents at 18 years old, this thing was just starting. It was all college students at first and graduate students. I was one of the older young people in this thing that became a worldwide movement. And my parents were some of the mature parents. A lot of the leaders in this organization were uh, single men mm. uh, who took vows of celibacy. And mm. so my parents became leaders in this movement, but they were married and had family. And so they were writing books about raising children and parenting at a very young age, younger mm. than they would think today that they ever should have. And those books were becoming bestsellers in this movement around the world. And the one of the books was named The Obedient Child. And I was the oldest child in this family written by these parenting experts. And so uh, I came to be seen as the obedient child. Um, at, at 18 years old, I went to Belfast, Northern Ireland to go to school for a year. And when I got off the plane at the international airport in Belfast, I was greeted with shouts uh, of, it's the obedient child. And, and I, I didn't, realize quite that it had that kind of thing, but certainly my body felt that like internal pressure. And so I was always aware of people are watching what I do and it's important to do the right thing. And the right thing, of course, in that context meant the approved thing by this religious community with its very clear ideas of right and wrong and good and evil, etc. Um, and so, you know, following that path, I, you know, by 15, I was a youth pastor for the younger kids in, in the religious group that we were part of. I continued doing that until my twenties when I was married. And then I became like a, a full-time, uh, pastor. And so I was always under a microscope of sorts or perceived myself to be under a microscope. For all I know, no one was paying me any attention whatsoever. But my, my experience was that, you know, I've got to be careful about everything I do. And, you know, I, 
I embraced that. I, I found a way to think of that as a good thing. Like it's important for me. I didn't like rebel against that because again, I got a claim for it and I got status and I got power of sorts and love of a certain variety uh, for being able to play that role. Um, so my first clue was that I began to be less conscious of the fact that there was any pain in my head, in my body, and so began to do the math on that. And it was actually in the process of doing this research on inspiration, uh, one of the participants offered to interview me in the way that I was interviewing the participants to try and unpack the, my experiences of inspiration. And after that conversation, just had a flood of insight about the roots of that pain for me. When I was 13 years old, um, uh, around then is when I began to explore my sexuality for the first time and masturbate. And I didn't know what it was because it wasn't talked about much in that context, of course. It was sort of a taboo subject. Um, I just knew it was a thing that felt good. and um, But I also knew had the idea that I, I could be like Jesus. I could be sinless. <laughs> you know, I know no one else can do this, but so far I've got a pretty good track record. I've been a pretty perfect kid and, and I could just do it all right. And that will allow me to save the world, you know, to, to cooperate with the Messiah and all the good things that he's up to in the world. And that's my job is to like be perfect. And so when it became clear to me that this thing I'd started doing was actually a quote unquote bad thing, um, I was unable to not do it. And it was the first time I encountered an experience of the thing that's required of me, I am unable to do. And so uh, I'm not going to be able to fulfill my purpose. People are depending on me. The world is depending. On, it's really messed up, you know, saying it in the light of day now, but this is in my young unconscious mind, the this, this set of like feelings and the math that was being done. And well, wow, that's a lot of pressure that, you know, the world's going to be messed up because, uh, because I'm masturbating and I can't stop doing that. You know, to my dad's credit, you know, we had conversations about it. He didn't make it a big deal. It was like gracefully handled, but still within the context of this is a thing that really is not a good thing that you need freedom from. And, um, yeah. And so it wasn't really until, on the other side of being a pastor that, you know, I didn't have that perspective on sexuality, on masturbation, on any of that, raising my own kids or on the people I pastored. I'd come to a different conclusion internally in my own thinking, but none of it had been applied to my own experience of myself and the way in which I related to myself around those things. I was just riddled with this like deep sense of shame, not about masturbating, but about not being able to be good enough to be perfect so that I could accomplish my purpose in the world and be used by God in the way that he wanted to. And anytime something didn't go well in my life or in the church community that I was pastoring, or even the lives of the other people I was caring for, my internal math was, it's because in some ways I'm not doing well enough to do that. Mm. So that's just all that became this like extended ways of carrying weights that were not mine to carry, that were inappropriately carried in the first place. Yeah. Um, oh. And, uh, and I, I, my sense is that's the root of that chronic yeah. pain that I had.
Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Cause that's, yeah, I was actually going to ask you if you can remember when you first started experiencing these yeah. headaches, you know, I, and you shared that, you know, the, that shame, you know, that shame of doing something that, you know, is taboo, doing something that you feel like is going to lead you not to be able to live up to these expectations of yourself. I'm interested to know at what, how old were you when your parents first wrote the, started writing these parenting books? Because I think it's fascinating that one of the books is called The Obedient Child. And I can only imagine how that also made you added pressure, as you've said. But how old were you when they started or, or when the first book was written? You know, I need to go back and look. That's a great question. I haven't looked at the copyright date of that book. My guess is that I was probably somewhere between eight and 10 years old. Mm. Um, my dad had been writing some other books, but that particular book that was explicitly about that was probably around then. I have now five sisters. Uh, my first sister was born just a couple of years after me. And then there was a gap and then a couple more sisters came. So my guess is they wrote it around the time when we had a, a larger family. Oh, so yeah. I probably would have been eight, nine years old, uh, something like that when it was written. To my dad's credit, yeah. um, <laughs> he uh, has renounced that book. Uh, he, he gave a copy to one of my cousins who was having a kid for Christmas a few years back. And he had gone through and struck out in red all of the passages that he would now disavow and written commentary on the side just as a joke. And it oh, was, wow. we had a wonderful time laughing at all of the sort of silly sounding things now yeah. that he and my mom had written as parenting advice. He's just oh. like, that's terrible advice. <laughs> yeah. Of course, he accompanied the book with a, a much better science-based book uh, for yeah. them. So. Yeah. Have you um, ever read the book in full? No, no, I haven't actually. No, that's funny. I officiated the wedding for some friends in Seattle. And um, the guy was a friend of mine I'd grown up with. And his fiance was someone I'd never met. And so I went out to Seattle to meet them. And I was talking with her and they were hearing some of my story. And when, when we came to that section, she, she stopped and said, oh, my parents read that book. I remember it when I was a kid. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but no, <laughs> yeah. I, I've never, I don't think I, I maybe I have, I don't remember uh, at least with any of my current awareness sitting down and reading through the whole thing. Yeah. But you felt it. You felt the messaging in the book. It was nothing about the book, actually. Mm. I, I don't, I, I, my perception is not that the book or the way my parents parented me was at all problematic. It was simply the fact that its title was The Obedient Child. Mm. I happened to be the child of the people who wrote it. And the way people perceived me was as this person. And as, that's sort of how that perception I embraced mm. and took on and thought, oh, yeah, sure, I can do that. Yeah. Um, so it's more of those like large level facts about it rather than the content of it that were yeah. experienced by me and eventually problematic ways. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd love for you to read it one day and like even just share your thoughts on it, you know, <laughs> um, because in some ways you, you were the, I don't want to say the inspiration, but it was based roughly on you, right? As a, as a child. Um, and yeah, so 
I would love to. <laughs> maybe I'll, maybe I'll, I'll pick up I the can, book. <laughs> I'll see if I can find it. It's hard to find. We're trying to make it as hard to find as possible. Uh, by, but if I can find a copy, I'll send you one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have now mentioned about leaving your pastorship. Is that a word even? Is uh, maybe. That- you know, pastoring, you you stop pastoring, right? You, yeah. you shared now that you you stop when you stop pastoring. That is when you realize that the pain disappeared, right? You stop feeling the 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 headaches, right? What led to you not being mm. a pastor? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. There was certainly a set of external dynamics that. Mm. Uh, larger things happening in the world that were part of that. And then there was a whole set of internal dynamics and the, the way those two things synced up and, and worked together. Uh, I'll maybe speak uh, first to the, the larger external forces. Um, at that time, the denomination that I was part of was beginning for the first time to wrestle with the question of LGBTQ plus inclusion. And my dad was at the forefront of those who were saying that LGBTQ inclusion within the context of the church was important and um, necessary and the path of love, etc. Um, and so he, he and I were uh, together in that, although he was pastoring a larger and more influential congregation and served on the board of the national denomination at the time. So that was beginning to create a bit of a firestorm, um, some controversy. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, in the larger evangelicals or progressive evangelical world, a uh, pastor named Rob Bell, also in the same state as us, he's now uh, in California, not pastoring, but you know he'll be on like Oprah's Super Soul Sunday, and he's like a <laughs> spiritual teacher now. But he wrote a book called Love Wins, mm. which was a, a rethinking of hell. Uh, a, a, a discussion around um, rethinking the theology of hell. And, you know, within all of that, at the bottom of both of those things is a, a question about what is the role of judgment? Uh, what is the role of standing over and naming something as bad, naming something as good? And how does does that shape community? Are we communities of people who consider ourselves within the bounded set of good and those who are not are on the outs and they are considered bad? Or is there a different way to organize human relationships? Brene Brown was writing at the same time for the first time around vulnerability mm-hmm. and the embrace of vulnerability and its um, relationship to shame, which of course is also about those same topics of judgment and love and how do we organize ourselves and our relationships. And I was doing a lot of theological work around that question and that topic, more not specifically about LGBTQ, but just about from a theological perspective, what is the role of love and judgment, etc. So all of those things were swirling in the air at that time. 
And um, some things happened uh, in within the denomination that caused it to uh, take a, a hard right conservative turn. Uh, a national director's uh, term expired and he retired and a new national director with different perspectives on these issues took over. Some things happened locally to create uh, a firestorm here in the, in the Ann Arbor area around the topic of LGBTQ inclusion. And um, it was it was my hope at the time that I could begin to lead the church through that in a positive direction. Yeah. Uh, and it became very clear that that was a, a naive uh, effort. And so we ended up uh, choosing as a congregation to close instead oh, wow. of have a big fight that would result in um, gay people being scapegoated as mm. the cause of the conflict when of course you know <laughs> not the cause of the conflict whatsoever um so th that's sort of like the bigger picture of what was happening uh, around that and a way of telling that story another way of telling that story and one that's more personally meaningful to me is when i turned 40 i was doing some self-reflection and thinking about the gifts I'd been given in my life and the opportunities I was enjoying as a pastor serving in a congregation and just filled with gratitude for the life I had and the things I'd been given and offering this prayer that I wanted to do all that I could with what I'd been given. And if there yeah. was more, I was open to that. And so, you know, uh, the way I would have framed it at the time was like, you know, Jesus, if there's anything more you want from me, I'm your <laughs> servant and I'm, you know, ready for that. And then everything began to fall apart in my world uh, as I experienced it at that time. Loss of relationships, um, some uh, difficult dramatic tensions that were very painful, some experiences of um, the way people related to me that were very hurtful, mm -hmm. um, a whole set of things that uh, my wife at the time and I experienced is pretty traumatic. And we went to a, a retreat to get some help from counselors and therapists and people who were there to like help pastors who'd been through challenging things. And it was at that retreat that I really gained some insight personally to the, the sense that I had not been bringing all that I was to the work that I'd been doing, that I'd been limiting different things I might say or do so as to like not overwhelm people, to not push people uh, farther than they were ready to go. And that I'd been doing that in some ways for most of my life as a pastor. And I'd been doing it for what I perceived to be good motivations that people needed to, you know, move at a certain pace. And that was helpful. Um, but the, the recognition I had at that time was that it, it wasn't helpful for me. And it was keeping me from bringing all that I had to bring to the world, which was in concert with that prayer I'd prayed earlier that yeah. year about what do I need to do? And, and I, I think I recognized in that time that, oh, if I begin to speak and act and move in my leadership in the ways that feel truest to my heart. And with all that I feel like I have to bring to the table, I'm not sure how this is going to work. Mm. <laughs> this, this might result in a failure of this endeavor 
that I've been doing. Um, but it will be truer to who I am and to this invitation. I feel like stirring in my heart to say, no, bring it, bring it all. That's what this time is about. And, and sure enough, it coincided with these other, you know, dynamics going on. And in some ways, those next three or four years became the best years of my pastoring life. I felt like I was, I felt like I was a better, you know, pastor than I'd ever been before. I was saying Mm -hmm. things that to me were for the first time, like deeply interesting and exciting. And certain people were being very moved and enthusiastic about it. But also there were a whole set of people for whom it was not helpful. It was problematic. It was not what they were ready for. And and so those tensions that had been present within the faith community uh, locally and nationally, um, uh, but had been hidden because those they hadn't been poked or pressed began to be exposed. And, um, and that opened me up not to favor, but to critique. And it, it led to like, how is this all going to hold together? And, oh, it can't. So how do we gracefully let go, uh, rather than try and hold it together? Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh my goodness. Um, as you were talking, I just kept thinking about, you know, this idea of like the preservation of self mm. or the preservation of one, our, a version of ourself mm. and how like embracing who we are truly could mean a loss and the choices sometimes we have to make. Is it yeah. going to be me being my authentic self or is it going to be all these other things that like in our mind sometimes means the world. It was just beautiful to hear you kind of reconcile with yourself and the ability to just let go, mm. right? And be and walk your truth, walk your path, right? Walk and follow that intuition. Was there a, part, a particular thing that kind of made you feel like what the choice I'm making is the right choice? Mm. The choice to let go, the choice to give up pastoring in this way, the choice to close the church um, was the right, is the right thing. Uh, So many answers for that. Uh, Let me try to give you a couple of them along the way, maybe chronologically. The first was before all the internal and external trauma were apparent, I had come to the conclusion that um, love was the path for me that I felt committed to and that judgment was something I was going to try to let go of in every context that I could see it happening in my life and sort of put all my chips on love as a, as a way forward and not to use judgment to protect myself. So when things began to go uh, south, as the expression goes, um, I was really committed to not defending myself, to um, to staying committed to what I perceived to be the path of love. Mm-hmm. And I knew I could feel that that meant a certain part of me was at risk because yeah. um, it wasn't going to be defended. Um, and the hope was that there was some part of me that was also, though, could only thrive by, by staying married to love. <laughs> and, and so, so that kind of the, the, the stage was set at that point. Right after the retreat, uh, a spiritual director there recommended the book 
uh, The Heart Waits by Sumant Kidd. And she mentions right in her first chapter this idea of the counterfeit and uh, something like the false encounter or the lost and counterfeit parts of the self uh, having to go away so that the true self could be born or emerge or come into fullness. And I remember reading that and going, yes, I want all the lost parts of myself that need to be found to be found. I want the counterfeit parts to be exposed and to be let go. And I want that true self uh, to come out. And so that, that plus the love and judgment sort of, I think, set me on that path in a way that I felt that was the crossing of the Rubicon. It wasn't going back. But right before the church closed, it was the first weekend in November. And we met, I had met with the board after a service and in that meeting with the church board, they're sort of the governing body. They're my, my supervisor or boss, as it were. Uh, and um, about seven or eight men and women. And I, I remember having the, I think it was an inspired insight where I said to them, I feel like the challenges we're facing are a function of the fact that I'm the pastor of this church. They're not because we haven't found the right strategy through this or the right way. It's the fact that I am the pastor. And I suspect many of you are here because you love what this church is up to and what it's doing. And you have a, a confidence in your relationship with me and a trust in me. And yet you've been carrying the tension that's present in here uh, for maybe years. And my guess is it's kept some of you sleepless at night and you haven't been sure what to do with it. And that doesn't feel like the right thing for me to be doing as a pastor to be putting you in that place. So I think either I need to leave, we need to get a new pastor, or we maybe need to close the church. But I feel like we need to wrestle with this question of, am I the right fit for this thing? Or is there tension always going to be present here because I'm the pastor? Mm. And every single person in that room uh, began to like experience tears in their eyes and, and were reflecting that, yes, this is what we've been feeling, although we didn't know how to name it or put a finger on it. And we need to wrestle with this question. Wow. Um, and so I went home and I was talking with my wife uh, about the experience. And we're sitting in my office and we both had tears in our eyes. As I said, you know, this might mean we're going to be closing the church at some point. And um, she reminded me... Aww. That was the 11th anniversary of that particular congregation that we'd started 11 years before. Of course, we'd lost track of all that in the things that were going on. Um, and that word 11 uh, rang in my head like a little bell went off. And I remembered that a, a woman who'd been the children's ministry director had moved to Texas. She'd been on staff. She'd moved to Texas. She'd been awoken with a dream three or four years earlier and had emailed me the dream that hadn't made any sense to me when she sent it to me, but I'd kept it in my Gmail and it had the number 11 in it. So I went mm -hmm. back and I read the email while I'm sitting there in the office with my wife, tears in our eyes. And in the dream, she describes coming into my office and seeing my ex-wife Ronnie and I there together in the office. And she said, we were mourning the death of an 11-year-old. And then in the dream, she flashed forward into the sanctuary of the church where, and she said, and all the pews were empty 
And then I was back in the office. There's more to the dream, but that was the essential point around the 11 year old. And, and I just recognized, oh, here we are, you know, a couple of years later, we're in my office. We're mourning the death, the potential death of an 11 year old. And I had this just overwhelming sense of peace Mm -hmm. that mm, as much grief as there might be in this somehow, um, this isn't just, this isn't bad. You know, I don't know that it's good, but it's not a thing I would judge as bad. And so I need to be present to it and cooperate and pay attention and listen and be open. And yeah. that allowed us, I think that piece for me certainly allowed me to be present to the people in the church, the leadership and to the process of figuring out what we were going to do in light of what we were aware of, um, the dynamics that were happening in our midst. Wow. Oh, what a, wow. (laughs) What a dream. And, um, a prophecy, right? I think. uh, Yeah. yeah. If, if that is a thing that seems to me to be a thing that would be named that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to know when you first got that email from this woman, what did you initially, what did you initially think? Cause now, you know, in that moment, you were able to like think back to this email, but when I'm interested to know what was your initial thought or reaction, if you can recall. She had called me because it had woken her in the night and she felt it was really important to tell me about it like quickly. And we chatted about it. And I, my perception, at least of my mind, and I think probably all human minds is that we have meaning making minds. So we, mm. I, and, and I really trusted this woman. Like I had a high opinion of her and of her, uh, her spiritual sensitivity, uh, and her responsibility as a person to paying attention to herself and communicating well about it. So I didn't think it was flaky or like, you know, wacko or crazy. So I was looking for meaning in it. Like there must be something here. This woman is not the sort of person that would, you know, just sort of randomly do this for no cause. So I, I, I found some meaning in some of the aspects of the dream that, that maybe were helpful. But, but I also remember telling her, you know, it feels like this is important and significant and i trust you so would you write it down and email it to me so that if at some point i it makes sense um i'll have it oh um, wow yeah what yeah, a which move. now that i think yeah. about it i was like well that was a good, <laughs> was a yeah. good call <laughs> yeah no um did you have children at the time because i just kept yeah. thinking like if i were to get that email and i had kids i would be like is this person predicting when my kids is going to pass away you know did you did you feel anything for you know i know that you do have kids now but yeah. i don't know what their ages are i had three kids at the time uh and no that thought never occurred to me okay. I, as a general rule um Anxiety has not, and worry have not been my primary like modalities. Okay. Um, and and I have a perception. I think at the time I had a perception of God as good, mm. uh, and as like anything that would be communicated as 
helpful and not intended to trigger uh, anxiety or distress. So I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think I heard it that way. Okay. okay. At all. Just me. <laughs> Just me. <laughs> Just me. Oh, wow. That. Okay. So you, you make this connection and, and in many ways com- confirmation that like this is what's best for the church and for you. Right. Yeah. And then what's next? Hmm. It's so funny. I, I made the connection that the, it was best for the church, but I, at that time in my life, I'd never, I'd never given the thought to what's best for me. I just, mm-hmm. that, that was a bad thing to do. That was a selfish, uh, posture. Now I, I shouldn't say that none of my actions were organized around that, but when they were, they were unconscious. Uh, I always framed everything in the sense of, you know, what's good for the church. I remember even when the church actually had to close, we had to gather with the board to like make the decision. We'd gotten all the input from all the people and all that was left for us was for us to vote. And normally a board member would put forth the proposal for the vote and then everyone would second it or, you know, and then we'd have the vote. Robert's rules of order or whatever. Yeah. And um, and no one was doing it. We were just talking and talking and talking and no one was doing it. And I realized, oh, we're like in a hospital room. And there's a patient who we all love, who's like maybe our, you know, patriarch or matriarch. And we've got to pull the plug and mm-hmm. no one wants to do it. And it, this is my job wow. to, to pull this plug. You know, that was the way my my self was organized at the time. It was like, I need to be that person. So this will be on me. It won't be on them. And uh, yeah, so it, it really wasn't until maybe a year after the church closed that for the first time I began to realize I'd, because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, there was no one I was taking care of anymore other than, you know, my wife and kids. I didn't have like a whole community. And, and I began to realize I, I don't know what I want. I'd come to a very clear picture with a trauma therapist of the part of me that was lost, mm. that needed to be found. It was the 11 year old me who was playing soccer in Germany, free, running around, full of joy, not the best, not the worst, good enough to have fun out there. (laughs) No expectation that I'd be great and had to win the game, but could just love it and realize that that 11 year old, that was the last moment that kid had ever felt free because he was in a different country. No one knew him as the obedient child. He didn't know the language. He didn't feel like he had to do anything. And that that kid was at risk of dying if the church hadn't closed, that I would have had to like, you know, pull the plug on him instead of the church. And so, so I began in therapy to think about for the first time, you know, what, what does it mean to look at that kid and let that kid come to life? What does he want? And, um, and realize, oh, his life is saved. And so what happened next, I think was your question. What happened next is I didn't have a plan B. Um, my thought at the time was, uh, you know, LGBTQ people have lived with the experience of disfavor their whole lives. And um, I've been a white man in America my whole life. And 
Um, I may go through a period of disfavor. I was, you know, people called me the devil and I was eventually sort of, I had to leave the town I was in because it was, it was difficult uh, to be there. It was problematic for others and problematic for my family. People wouldn't come to see my wife or kids because I was there. If I was in the grocery store, people would, you know, pick up their kids and shuffle to another aisle so as to avoid me or run across the street. And it was a small town, so wow. it was hard to be avoided. And, um, uh, oh gosh, I lost my train of thought remembering that experience. Next, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Oh yeah. So I didn't have a plan B. Um, I just figured, well, you know, I may, things may be hard for a while and I'll get to identify and be present with the, the people who've experienced this in some ways, uh, the whole of their lives. And that will be instructive and useful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I took a job, uh, working as a consultant, really as a pastor for a startup organization for three months to help them identify their purpose and values. Um, I was fired in a way that was quite traumatic for me at the moment. So you don't get unemployment as a pastor. So I didn't have unemployment. I didn't have a job. I didn't have any experience in any industry where I could get one. I I looked for jobs for months to no avail. Couldn't even get interviews. Um, and uh, and so I thought I need to go out into the woods for a week and figure out what I'm going to do. It was also clear that the stress that the church had been experiencing with me as a pastor was similar to the stress my wife was experiencing with me as her husband. Mm. Um, and although getting divorced was would have been named as bad in my like the way my body felt about it, not my intellect or my mind, but you know, my sense of self was like, this is the path that bad people take. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't be one of those. So I spent a week in the woods and that, that week there was the turning point around all of those questions of what would come next in my life. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I could just, I could feel, I could feel a lot. Um, thank you. <sighs> I, I kept thinking back to this idea of pulling the plug and who do you save? And also just thinking about things in my life, moments where you need to save that inner child or bring that inner child back because that inner child being so far away is what makes you not connect with yourself. So I'm curious to know, while you were in the woods, was there any moment where you felt like you you were doing any kind of practice or anything that where you were welcoming that inner child back? Yeah. I, and I should clarify, when I say in the woods, I was in a really nice cabin in the woods. <laughs> there were no other people. You other were glamping. Around. You were glamping. <laughs> yeah. So I Jesse. was isolated and alone, but I wasn't suffering. Just <laughs> lest anyone get the idea that I'm way cooler than I actually am. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So I, I brought along Brene Brown's book, Rising Strong. Mm. And she has a set of exercises um, designed to help you identify the story you've maybe been organizing your life around that isn't serving you anymore. And in fact, maybe is counterproductive. Maybe when you tell that story to yourself, it, it's increasing your suffering and keeping you trapped. And so to identify, she calls it a shitty first draft, um, and to identify it, 
let go of it and name a new story. Mm-hmm. And so I was spending a lot of my time uh, working through that. And at the same time, just walking and praying in the woods and trying to listen. My, my question that I was saying, like, God, I'm giving you a week to answer essentially was, do I stay committed to this path I'm on, which already has led to the closing of the church, which looks like it's going to lead to the ending of my marriage. We'd been married about 20 years at that point had led to the end of my career. Or do I, um, kind of try and pull it all back together. At the time, my ex-wife, I think her hope was that maybe I would kind of let go of some of these like convictions and the problematic way in which they were expressed and and find a new church to pastor Mm -hmm. and like, you know, sort of be that person that she'd married who would have done that um, for the sake of helping keep the family together and and providing the life in some ways that I'd promised her or that that promise existed for her in marrying me um, and kind of become the person I needed to be to get the train back on the tracks. Mm. Those were the the choices I saw before me. And I, I, at the time I, I was, my understanding was that uh, Jesus is the one who wants to give me life. And so I can trust him. So tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. I feel really lost and hurting and suffering. Um, and I know I need to hear something new from you. So in the Brene Brown book, um, what became clear to me is that my shitty first draft story was you're special and mm-hmm. can do everything right. And if you do, all will go well for you. Wow. And the world. Yeah. Because, you know, I'd been as a kid in pregnancy, the doctors had told my mom I would die. She'd been bleeding for months and Mm. expected her to die. And some Jesus freak friends of theirs had gathered in a secret prayer meeting at night to pray for her because they were atheists, my parents. um, And the bleeding had stopped and I'd been saved. And it, you know, so I had this dramatic story as a kid that I was like special and had this purpose. And then growing up as the obedient child, I was special. I could do it. I could be perfect. And so, of course, with everything going wrong in my life, that was not a helpful story. It meant, well, if I think I'm doing everything right and everything's going bad, I must be a monster. Mm. Uh, which was not helpful. And so I, I, I found that shitty first draft and I let go of it. Yeah. And the new story that came to me was very simple, which is I'm ordinary and that's okay. And I just felt this wave of freedom and peace when I wrote that story down in a notebook. It's such a simple story. I'm ordinary and that's okay. Um, and that has been my story since then. And sh- shortly after that, I was getting frustrated that God wasn't answering my question about what I should do. And so I was like, Ah, I remember as a kid, the thing you had to do if you were going to be a follower of Jesus was you had to like basically do the I'd go to Africa prayer, um, which is ironic talking to you here now. And I say it with deep shame, but the 
the way the conception was, if you were going to be a follower of Jesus, you needed to do the worst thing he'd ever ask you to do. That's how you knew you were really in. And always in our conception as Western white people, the worst thing he might ask you to do is go be a missionary in Africa, leaving all of the like comforts behind of, of that. And so if you could like be at the place where you were like, okay, I'll go be a missionary in Africa, then you knew you were like a real Christian. And, and I remembered that thought and I thought, what is the parallel for that? for me now in my experience now. And at the time it was, okay, if I trust you, Jesus, um, I'm willing to get the train back on the tracks. That was the worst thing I could imagine doing. Um, and so I knelt down and said, I'm willing to hear whatever you have to say, even, even if it's that. And th these words came into my mind, into my consciousness very clearly. <laughs> I remember them vividly still today. It was set your sail, risk the ocean. There's only grace. And so I, I knew what I had to do. And uh, what has transpired in my life since then feels to me like an unfolding of um, that release an invitation uh, organized around that story of I'm ordinary and that's okay. Yeah. Can you repeat that line again? I thought it was so beautiful. Set, Set your sail, sail, risk the ocean. the ocean. There's only grace. There's only grace. The way I understood it was that I'd been living on land and I'd become something of a king or a prince or something. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd learned how to live on that land mm -hmm. and thrive. And I was on the shore and there was an unknown ocean that I didn't, I didn't know what life it might hold for me. Or that if you could even live on it, it was just the dark expanse of unknown. And yet also the promise of adventure yeah. and something new. Um, and so that I could go out there and the trust that there is only grace. There is only grace everywhere. Yeah. And what I took about, took from that was just being open to new experiences, being open to the unknown, being open to a new, a new life, essentially, right. A new story. Um, and I like that you didn't take it literal because I could see somebody <laughs> taking that literal and be like, oh, actually set sail. You're like, let me actually go and do this missionary. Um, and, and I love that. You, yeah. You touched I never on, thought of that connection yeah. to, to like go be a missionary. It's, <laughs> that's it's, beautiful. I was, I was waiting for you to say, oh, and that's how I ended up in this country in Africa. I was like, oh, Jesse. <laughs> But I love that you didn't take it so literal, you know, that what it really meant was just, no, you can turn a new page, you know, and that this, that your pastoring was coming to an end as you know it. You know, mm -hmm. I think what you're doing currently is still pastoring in many ways, right? It's getting mm -hmm. people to think. It's, um, but it's, it's just, it's a, it's a new it's an, it's, what's the word I'm looking for? You're just doing it. You just have a different vehicle for living your purpose. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that's so beautiful. And I, again, I just love that line. I'm going to like write it down. Um, almost like a mantra 
to remind yourself, you know, I think one thing that my father had said to me um, in many ways is that things will, things will be okay. To be able to look beyond your current circumstances, that's what allows you to, be, to dream big, to live up to your highest self and not your little self. Because your little self is just thinking about being on this land right? Mm-hmm. Versus your higher self thinking of sailing, you know, into the unknown. So I think that was so beautiful. Um, and the way you said it was so, so, so beautiful. So now can you tell us what that translated for you? <laughs> I told you what was a literal translation, which I'm happy <laughs> you didn't do. But what was the translation for you? Yeah, the translation for me was really to uh, continue on the path that I'd been on, which was an, you know, an ocean directed mm-hmm. path. I, I had, there'd been a, a metaphor or a marketing term, um, that had been popularized in some of the like business literature called blue ocean mm-hmm. marketing. Um, the, it's, all the sharks are feeding uh, in one area. And so there's blood in the water. It's the red ocean. But if Mm -hmm. you go out deeper where there's no sharks feeding and you go fish there, it's much harder. You need different boats to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, it's also, there's new fish and new adventures. So that was the, the term was blue ocean marketing. And in the church world that I'd been pastoring in um, the blue ocean uh, faith was a was a term that felt meaningful to me. Like I don't really care about religious people or helping religious people, you know, improve their faith. What I care about is people who don't have a connection to themselves, to God, to the world around them in a way that is rich and deep and, and thriving and producing life. And so, how do we build vessels that can go and and help? those people. Jesus mm-hmm. often talks about being fishers of, of men, uh, maybe not often, at least in one instance. Uh, <laughs> that, that's a phrase that is used when he's recruiting Peter to be uh, his disciple, who was a, a, a fisher in Galilee. And so anyway, that was already in my mind. And so when I, when I heard the like set sail, risk the ocean, it was very much like continue in that direction of exploring what it means to, to help people thrive and connect. This is the thing I felt passionate about. This is the thing that had led to all the troubles in the, you know, in the, in the water previously. And so keep on going. And so much of what you said resonates with my understanding of that as well, which was just that, like, it's okay. Like my, my well-being is not a function of doing it right mm. or having the favor of others. The universe is not a conditional place that rewards the good. The universe is a place that is filled with grace, that's joyful, that is inviting connection, that has birthed everything out of joy and is inviting everything into deeper joy. And so, so go, yeah. uh, relax. Uh, see what comes. Yeah. Okay. And that's what you're, that's what you've been doing. <laughs> as best as I've known how. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is a really good segue into the work that you've been doing and how we even became connected in the first place, your research around inspiration, how we become, find, feel, um, and stay, um, stay inspired. Want to focus on inspiration. Hmm. Um, 
as you may have guessed from the last thing I was just talking about, joy has been a, a central theme in my life, trying to understand joy, figure out, you know, is joy a thing we can cooperate with and participate in? Is it just random and it just happens? Or, you know, can we um, strengthen our capacity to experience joy, etc.? And so I've been doing coaching and consulting and exploring around that topic for the last number of years. And when the pandemic hit, um, some of the the practical work that had flowed from that exploration um, was reduced. Mm. Um, uh, In some ways, you know, leaving the career and life that I'd had before uh, meant scrambling to figure out how to have a place to live. And so I find myself in this home that uh, has a bunch of small bedrooms. And so I've been renting it out for football games Mm. on U of M's campus. Large groups can come and, and that pays for the place that I live. And well... I didn't, I couldn't do Airbnb or anything during the pandemic. People weren't traveling and I couldn't have individual guests in rooms because of virus concerns, et cetera. So I had some more time on my hands. Um, some of the coaching work was constrained by the lack of ability to be in person. Some of the consulting contracts I had were just canceled or, or put on pause during it. And so I found myself like happily continuing to explore themes of joy and, you know, work on writing and, reflection and all of that, but I was somehow restless around that. And I was uh, somebody who knew the financial challenges of that time for me, and who also knew that I might have more time on my hands, uh, invited me to consider taking a a position at the University of Michigan to do some project management for a year, just a one-year contract gig that would pay some bills. And, you know, it was work that I had... um, capacity to do. And so I was thinking about that job. I was thinking, what am I going to have to let go of to do that job for the next year that I might not want to let go of? And could I be inspired while I'm doing it? Because if I could spend the next year inspired doing some other kind of work, that's fine for me. I just mm-hmm. want to be inspired. I've, these, I've spent my whole life you know, feeling inspired about what I'm doing, uh, even if it hasn't always been the best fit, at least I felt like this enthusiasm and energy and expectation that something wonderful might come on the other side of it. And so I uh, just thought, okay, I need to ask somebody, this person more about this job to find out if I could be inspired doing it. And then I thought, what does that even mean Mm. to be inspired actually do other people ask that question is that like just a weird thing because of like my background i began texting some of my friends uh and colleagues about like do you ever ask yourself the question you know could i be inspired doing this yada 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 anyway um as i began thinking about that question and that job it occurred to me that i didn't really know what inspiration was and i was Mm. Curious, and I talked to a friend in Singapore about it, and she's a researcher, PhD, and she said, "I don't know a lot of research around that topic. Um, uh, I wonder what would happen if you started asking these questions you've been asking informally of some of your friends about inspiration that you're asking yourself if you did it in a more formalized way and turned it into a research uh, 
project and I couldn't sleep for the next two nights. I was just wide awake in my bed thinking about all the the fun I would have doing (laughs) research on inspiration. I knew immediately, I don't even need to find out if I can do that job, that project management job in an inspired way for the next year. This is how I want to spend the next year. If I don't know where I'll sleep or how I'll have enough money to live, but I think I think I can make it work. I'm going to trust that I can, and I'm just going to dive into this process. And so I began to learn how to do research, how to do grounded theory research, which is the kind of research Brene Brown mm. uh, did or does, I should say. I talked to a friend at the University of Michigan Center for Positive Organization, one of the co-founders there, Jane Dutton, uh, who's a grounded theory researcher and said, will you mentor me and help me a little bit? And uh, yeah, that's how that project began. I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if it's a David Foster Wallace quote or if he's quoting someone else, but he tells a story about two fish having a conversation. And the one fish says to the other fish, how's the water? And the other fish responds, what's water? (laughs) I thought, that's me. That's (laughs) I've been swimming in this sea of inspiration my whole life. And I've never stopped to, to think about what is water. What is is inspiration? What is your hope with this project? That's a really good question. Um, My hope with this project, I think, is to become as good a friend of inspiration as I can become. I have the sense already, even from the research I've done so far, that inspiration is up to the best thing in the world. It's uh, catalyzing joy. Um, it's uh, catalyzing connections between things that create beauty, that are sustaining and life-giving and add to the wonder of the world we live in. There, it's catalyzing connections between people that is uh, liberating them from anxious and emotionally regressive systems and allowing them to experience um, healthy connection and creative self-expression within the context of the joyful system that gave birth to this world and that we're all part of, uh, that we see in the natural world uh, much more clearly than maybe we always see in human community, but we see, you know, shining bright lights from time to time. Uh, and so inspiration in its liberating work and in its creative work uh, is just like, well, that's that's what I want to be part of. That's what I want to have at work in my own life. And so if I can learn to cooperate with inspiration in this way, I spoke about it as a catalyst, which sounds very much like a, a thing thing, <laughs> like a, a particle or something. But I, there's certain ways in which it seems to function as an architect of joyful infrastructure and as a midwife of nascent um, gestating things within us that need yeah. to be given birth. And so, yeah, I'd love to cooperate with it in the way in which it's architecting new infrastructure for my life and the life of the community that I'm a participant in um, and that ha- I have contact with. And, I, and I'd love to cooperate with it in the ways in which it is giving birth to new things in me. I even think of the self as a thing that can be an inspired thing, the constructed story that we tell about that brings meaning to our interactions with each other and the world around us. And 
an inspired self is joy bringing, where I know certain parts of myself, the counterfeit parts have been f- products of the anxious system and have not necessarily been joy bringing. So that I have that hope and I, I have hope that um, I know it's a pleasure and a joy for me to cooperate with its work in midwifing things in other people too, mm. and in other communities. And so to be able to, to do that more, whatever else comes from it beyond that, um, uh, is for me, the icing on the cake or the gravy or the, you know, whatever I can imagine, but I'd like to let inspiration, uh, lead that, you know, whatever inspired things flow from it, I can only imagine will be good. And delightful and fun. I'm looking forward to just the continuation of this exploration of inspiration. I know we have these group, you know, you have like um, focus groups to explore more about that. And I've really enjoyed the conversations that are coming out of it. Jesse, so much of your story has been about understanding yourself and being true to yourself. And that has meant letting go, letting go of a life in order to really um, be your, your most authentic self, right? So I want to know what are the practices that you have, that you do to remain connected to yourself? Maybe I should talk just for a moment about my understanding and relationship with myself. And then I can talk about a particular practice I've been using recently in, in that context. I've come to understand um, myself as a as a as a multi-layered thing. I, I have a, a sense of myself as the observing self, the loving awareness that is just part of all things that happens to be inhabiting in this particular case, this body in this place at this time, and that this evolved human being. Um, has constructed uh, an ego, a story, a, a thing to serve this body. Like that's, that's part of its role to, to add to its capacity for creative connection with all the other things around it in a way that brings thriving to the body and all of that. And that in some ways that constructed self, because it's a function of story, is a function of a couple of different kinds of stories. Some of those stories are stories that are rooted in anxious systems that have a perception of the world as a world of scarcity, uh, as a world where what is important is control and self-preservation. And some of those stories are joyful stories. They're stories about connection and they're stories about creative self-expression. And they're stories that embrace vulnerability in the face of the instinct for control and self-preservation. And, and so for me, it's, it's coming to understand what parts of myself are a function of my constructed self are a function of those anxious system stories that need to be disentangled and let go of and um, ignored in certain ways. So they're not given voice and it falls away. And, And what parts of my constructed self are, connected to the joyful system that I can nurture and that I can cooperate with and that I can give life to. And I think I mentioned that experience of that, uh, trying to help that 11 year old uh, 
part of myself come to life more and more. And I think that's been a focus of one of my practices of self more recently is how can I give that 11-year-old what it didn't get for the last, you know, several decades in my life um, that have caused it suffering and that don't necessarily serve me. So, for example, there was a time in my life when I'd come home from a Sunday morning having preached, you know, at a couple of services and had this high of being present to a large group of people where we're all connected and laughing and inspired. And I would come home and I wouldn't eat for the rest of the day to punish myself for the ways in which I felt like I'd failed and missed the... I just was covered with shame about how I'd just been like so effusive and my arms waving and it wasn't even conscious. It was just a sense of shame that I'd exposed myself to this group and it would be rejected and I would just punish myself. And I haven't done that for been in that kind of setting very often since the church closed. I live a much more anonymous life where nobody's paying attention to me most of the time, except maybe a client here and there or my kids or whatever. And so when I gathered with a focus group for inspiration for the first time and had a delightful time chatting with everyone, as soon as I hung up on the Zoom call, I just felt this incredible wave of shame and of like, oh, I am not the right person for this. And why am I wasting my time? And I, I didn't want to eat dinner that I'd been looking forward to before the meeting. And I, I just, I remembered how parallel that felt to that thing I'd felt so many years before. And so there's a, a psychologist uh, and mindfulness teacher named Tara Brock, who has this exercise called that with the acronym RAIN that she uses that I've been trying to adopt as a particular practice of self. The R in RAIN stands for recognize. Like just recognize the thing you're feeling. And so, because for me, so for so long in my life, shame was not a thing I recognized because I was like, everyone loved me <laughs> and I was good at everything. And so, well, this feeling I have, I didn't identify it as shame. It was just this invisible pain. And so just going, oh, that thing I'm feeling right now, that's shame. And then the A in rain is accept, like accept it. Like, oh, that, that is what is here. And I don't need to resist it. I don't need to like judge myself for feeling it. Like what's wrong? Cause my first instinct was I got to go, go to therapy so that I can get rid of this shame. Like what's wrong with me? <laughs> that I have this shame, <laughs> like shame layered upon shame. So like accept it and be there. And then the I is interrogate or investigate it, try to understand where it's coming from and with, with kind of compassion and, and with curiosity. And so like looking at it and going, Oh, there, there's some child part of myself that is looking for a thing in certain situations. And if it doesn't get it, it, it feels like it's been rejected and because I had rejected it, you know, for so long in my life and it needs a hug. It needs an embrace. It needs a, it's okay. I love you. You're part of me. I'm not, you're not going anywhere. I'm not going to abandon you. And then N is, is nurture is to like nurture with compassion, that thing you've seen. And so figure out how I could give that thing that was crying out with need in that moment. And, and I, my hope or anticipation or maybe even experience at this point is by doing that in those moments when I experience these things that go like, I don't want to be this way. 
to instead go, oh, I am this way. What do I need and how can I give myself that thing I need? And of course, there are times when I, I don't necessarily have or know how to give myself what I need. And I need help from a therapist or a friend or a family member. And I have to ask, you know, for, I think this is what I need, but it's so different than how I used to operate uh, around myself uh, yeah. before. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I've said this before on the show, but I believe that there are truly no bad emotions. They're, they're just trying to tell us something. They're trying to tell us whether it's something that we need to, like you said, in, in, interrogate or something we need to like nurture. It's like, is this something we, are we moving in the path that we want to, or, or do we want to go on a different path? It's a feeling and it's, it's not bad. You know, like if you're feeling shame, why are you feeling shame? And I yeah. think take, taking the time to understand that because then it just continues that cycle of punishment. All of us punish and, and don't forgive ourselves in different ways, you know. I, my background, I grew up dancing. And I remember there would be times where you would perform or be in dance class and you feel like you would then beat yourself afterwards and be like, oh my God, I wish I could have done this that way, right? And it just ruins the whole, your whole day, your whole day. Everybody else might think you've done great, but in your mind, you didn't do good. Oh, my yeah. feet weren't pointed perfectly. I didn't jump as high enough. All these different things. And it just eats you up. And, and I understand that um, the point about even losing appetite. It's not even you saying I'm going to starve myself. But yeah. because you're so over, you get so consumed by this feeling that nothing else seems to exist. Like you can't even, you're unable to live beyond that moment, right? You're stuck. You're like really, really stuck. Yeah. Um, and unless you really kind of have some kind of practice, right, um, to help you get over that, um, it can be debilitating for a lot of us. It can be debilitating. So thank you for sharing that and how you're helping yourself in moments like that. That story about that you told about ballet, you're right. It feels so parallel. Yeah. I can I can feel what you were feeling just by remembering my own experiences, <laughs> even though I have taken a couple ballet classes, but I am the furthest thing there is from a, <laughs> a, a ballet, I yeah. don't know, a ballerina, whatever uh, that is. But um, uh, you're, you're making me realize that I kept that thing alive in me because of the story I had about it. And the story mm -hmm. I had about that was, oh, if I, if I'm upset at the fact that I missed this opportunity or could have done this thing better or didn't quite get it right, it, it's what will help me do better next time. Mm -hmm. And that's important for, you know, my mission, purpose, whatever, to get better and better. And so I sort of need to nurture this, this shameful thing because it's what will drive me to like be better in the future. And that story is one of the stories I let go of yeah. and it's replacing it with a new story, which like I think I really loved what you said about there are no bad emotions. Mm -hmm. the, the way I've come to think of it as, is there are positive and negative emotions. And when I say positive, I mean, they're drawing me towards something 
or there's negative ones which are pushing me away from something. And then to ask the question, even about the positive ones, why am I being drawn towards this? What will it do? And Or why am I being pushed away? Because sometimes the things I'm drawn towards aren't necessarily going to serve me. They're a function of old stories. I want profit or power or prestige or whatever. Oh, that's that's the not the part of me that I want to live that's drawn towards that. I got to disentangle that uh, and vice versa with the negative. Yeah. Thank you again for just sharing that your practice, you know, like I said, um, we are all finding our ways to understand and know ourselves. And for me, that's the beauty of this show is for people to begin to put into practice ways of connecting and understanding themselves, right? And not being ashamed of themselves. You know, I think so many of us are living in shame. You know, for yeah. different things, for different things. And um, and we sometimes don't even recognize that it's shame that's fueling that kind yeah. of feeling. And it's only when we sometimes step away from a particular environment can we understand that shame. So thank you for sharing that. I want to ask you if there's anything else you would like to share before we wrap up. <laughs> no, I, this feels, uh, I'm happy to answer other questions, but uh, no, this is delightful and I, I feel good. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know me, I could, or you're getting to know me, I could go on and on and on about all <laughs> kinds of things, uh, but it feels peaceful. It is. Oh, I love that. Peaceful. That's, that's the word. That's the word for the, for the day, feeling peaceful. And that's exactly what I want more than anything else is for, uh, for my guests to leave um, the show feeling at peace and at mm. ease with themselves and what they have shared with the world. Um, yeah. Stories going out into the world. Yeah. No, it is. It's, uh, it's good to be alive. Like the way mm. things interweave and connect, you just go, oh, part of something much larger going on. Uh, I should be able to relax in the midst of this. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much again, Jesse. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And I look forward to the blossoming of this research project. Yeah, thanks, Yelka. Yeah. Such a gift today that you gave <laughs> me. I appreciate it. Uh, delightful to spend this time with you. Oh, um, take your chisel to the stone, <laughs> take your scalpel, do whatever you will with it. And if there's oh, anything more you need from me, uh, I'll of course make myself available. So. Yes. Oh, before I leave, actually, I wanted to share that because Jesse gave me the most beautiful compliment um, so far. I mean, I've received so many um, reviews and thank you to everybody who has left a review on the show so far. A while back, Jesse wrote an email um, about my podcast and I was so touched. I think most of the reviews talked about the podcast and how it makes them feel. And you, you do that too. But I think your, what you wrote to me was one of where you saw me, right? You saw me for who I am as a finale and, and really expanding like the limits of this tradition that I've inherited from my father. It gave me so much pride in that, you know, it gave me so much pride because you saw it as an, 
as, as an artist, you saw me as an artist, you know, and um, it wasn't just this hobby, like, oh, she has this nice little podcast, but you really saw me as an artist and you even compared me to an artist. And I was like, oh my goodness. So, so thank you for those beautiful words. I seriously, I, I reflect on that very often and um, it has made me also want to continue to own this craft right? It's, it's not just about coming here and just talking to people. I love it. That's what it is. But it's also a, it's also a craft, you know, and um, with your words, it made me want to take it even more seriously, you know, than ever. Yeah. So, so thank you I, for that. I, I don't know if I told you in the email, maybe I did. And I don't know that it's relevant for this podcast, <laughs> but I was listening to your episode with the woman who won the David Prize. Yes, yellow. While, while I was um, just noticing your gift at crafting this story uh, from her story and with her. Mm. And, um, and of course, the David Prize, I'm sure, is what put into my mind this idea <laughs> of the David yeah, as yeah, a yeah. you know as a metaphor for what I was seeing you do. Uh, but it also makes me think that would be the... An, great name for an award for podcasters like you or storytellers like you, the David <laughs> Award, <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> finding the story yes, uh, in people's yes, lives. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. When I was especially diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which... Thank you for listening to this episode of Kume Turning Point Diaries. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and review, and don't forget to share with your loved ones. Also, in order to get notified of any of our latest episodes, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on our socials at Turning Point Diaries. DRC Jaye is the technical director of this episode. This episode was produced by Kume House and the AMBC. My name is Yonka Kamara. I'm the creator and host of this podcast. Kume, until next time. Theme music by Exile Dynamics featuring more Fox. Fox.